claimed. God, we ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. When you think of the word blessed, what comes to mind? Is it merely hashtag blessed? Is it merely I'm blessed in health? I'm blessed in wealth? I'm blessed in a roof over my head? I'm blessed in having the perfect moment? Hashtag blessed. It's a quiet moment with a perfect setup of scene of a Bible and, and on a comfy chair right before real life happens. That's the way we, we often think of this word blessed, of the temporary, of the here and now in the moment. We, we think I'm blessed in the worldly. But what happens when real life actually comes? What happens when you get that news that a loved one is dying of cancer or has cancer and has to battle it? What happens when you enter suffering and tribulation? What happens when you have a child who goes astray and wanders off? What happens when your child wants nothing to do with you? What happens when you have to make those hard decisions because of strife? Is it still blessed? If we embark on on the world's definition of blessed, the, the answer has to be no, we're not truly blessed. But there's a greater blessing. A blessing that comes through God our Father. A blessing that He gives that's more eternal, that lasts, that endures, that helps us through those hardships. And that's what we see this morning as we open up the introduction to the book of Ephesians this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is where we'll be at this morning. While you're turning there, just a to give a little bit of introduction to this letter, to this epistle written to the church of Ephesus. Uh, it was written in the year AD 62. Uh, Paul was, was thought to have been in prison there in Rome when this letter was written. He focuses on many various things, but we can best break down the book of Ephesians like this. Chapters 1 through 3 is theological. It's here who his God is. Here's what he's done in you. In verses four through, or chapters 4 through 6 are more practical. Here's how you live this out. Here's what to do with this theological information. So we're going to try and walk in that imbalance. But there's other things that the letter hits on too. One big emphasis is that of ecclesiology. Paul hits on the local church over and over again, especially in chapter 2 and 4. He hits on what it means to be the church, what it looks like to work together, to be a united body in Christ, being built up into Christ. We also see an emphasis on sanctification, that is, being made more like Jesus. All through the letter, it's like, okay, here's who God is, here's how you need to live now. Chapter 2, it it talks about, here's how you've been saved through grace. 2.10, Here's now what you do. Let your good works shine because of God's grace. Chapter 5, here's what it looks like to walk as a sanctified Christian, as one being made into the image of Jesus. Here's what it looks like in your family, as a husband and wife in your marriages, in your children, in your workplace. All of this hitting on sanctification. These are the things that Paul hits on in this letter but maybe most prominently, is a high Christology. 
a high teaching of Christ and what it means to be in him. And that's where we look this morning as we we open up. Let me go ahead and read here uh, from Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of, the, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and so we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This letter, as we saw there in verses 1 and 2, is written by the Apostle Paul. One, chosen by the will of God. That's Paul's authority as he writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. He has the authority because he is one who has seen Christ in his risen state and been commissioned by him, by the will of God, to go and make disciples amongst the Gentile people. That's Paul's mission. He has authority, so that's why he writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. But notice, too, how, how this audience is described there at the halfway through verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This isn't written to just some random people. It's written to those that are clearly in Christ, to the saints, those set apart as holy, as we'll see even in verse 3 who have been declared blameless in Christ. These are the audience. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. Friends, the, this is, is beginning, and we'll later see as we go through this letter, marking what it means to be a member of a local church. One must be a saint. One must be a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul lays out what it looks like to be a Christian and to be a Christian means to be tied to a local church because that's where you develop this oneness. You're built in as one body under one head of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's going to be laying out through this letter. Don't take my words for it. Take the word of God here in Ephesians. That's how this letter is setting up. But before he gets too much into this, he, he emphasizes grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is what you have 
in your faithfulness in Christ. Grace and peace, they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are yours in that unity with him because you were saints, because you were faithful in Christ. That's the introduction. You can imagine where this letter is about to go as we've already read in verses 3 through 14. And here's what I think is the main idea then of this introduction here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Hear, Hear this main idea. All who are united to Christ Jesus by faith have been blessed by God in the outpouring of his grace and love in Christ. And therefore we are to respond in overwhelming praise to God. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen. All who are united to Christ Jesus by faith have been blessed by God in the outpouring of his grace and love in Christ, and therefore we are to respond with overwhelming praise to God. We're going to look at this in two points. Point number one, blessed be God. Blessed be God. Point number two, blessed by God. Blessed by God. Let's look at point one, which is is more shorter. Blessed be God. Look there again at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the Lord our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be blessed, that is, to be praised. Why? Why is, is God to be praised? Look at what it says he has done. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul in the midst of this is calling us to praise, to bless God. But in the midst of doing so, I hope you catch what is going on. Paul, in in the midst of trying to instruct the Ephesians and ultimately us to praise God, he gets lost in praise to God because of what God has done in Christ. So Paul's not just telling you to do something he himself is not easily captivated to do. He is caught up in entering this praise with us. Blessed be this God who has redeemed us, who has saved us. Blessed be our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has poured out and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, this is a call for us to see why we should praise and bless our God in worship. This, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, teaches us what it means to truly be blessed, to be blessed in Christ. Now, this phrase, in Christ, is essential to understanding this whole thing. This phrase, in Christ, in some shape and form, is used 11 times in verses 3 through 14. So, 11 times in 11 verses, it's used in some way, in Christ, in Him, or subtly referring to that idea of being united to Christ. The blessings that God pours out are tied to those who are united to Christ. When we get to Ephesians 5, we're going to see that Paul labors out to say that Christ and the church is like marriage. Or actually, marriage is a picture of that. And what happens in marriage when you become one flesh. Men, maybe you married a sugar mama. 
Maybe all of her financial wealth became yours when you married her. Or maybe, ladies, you married a sugar daddy, and what was his became yours. You get the idea. What was one's becomes the other's. That also goes for all the baggage. In our union with Christ, when we actually come to faith, to saving true faith in Jesus, we become one with him. That means what's his becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His standing before the Father becomes ours. This is why we praise our God. Because in Christ, every spiritual blessing is poured out upon us in Christ. So friend, this morning, if you were sitting here and and you were not a believer, or you're listening later on, uh, tuning in, these blessings we're talking about are not yours. Not yet, at least. Because of your refusal to believe in Jesus, to be united to him, to be one with him in faith, you do not have these blessings. I pray this morning as we go that you will see your need to believe in Christ so that these can become yours so that you can taste the sweetness of the blessing in Christ. But make no mistake, they are not yours yet. These blessings do not belong to the non-believer. They belong to the Christian, to the one who has placed their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not the one who's walked an aisle and prayed a prayer who said, Repeat after me and pray this. And if if you just pray this prayer, you're saved. That's not what saves. It's that trust in Christ that saves. That's why I don't do altar calls. Because I want somebody to trust actually in Jesus, not in a moment, in a prayer. I want them to say, I rest in Jesus. I know he's my Savior. I know he's the one I come to rest in. We want to make sure this union with Christ is truly a union and not just some tug in the moment. Because I promise you, as we're going to see from the Spirit, if it's the Spirit that's drawing them, nothing's stopping them. Ain't nothing going to stop them from coming and trusting in Christ. Because that union, that pull, men, think of it this way. Think of what happened the day of your wedding. I know my wedding day. Darcy and I are about to celebrate five years on July 1st. We had our wedding ceremony in her parents' living room on Stormy Lake. Beautiful scenery out behind the window. My back's to the window, though, and as Darcy enters in, my eyes are locked on her. I'm gazed on her. My father leans in and I'm about ready to go shove him out of the way and like get out of the picture. I want to see my bride. That's what happens when we are united to Christ. Nothing stops us from coming to see our bride groom. Nothing stops us from coming to see and behold Christ because of that union and we want it. Friends, let it be seen this morning. This is the kind of understanding of what it means to bless God and praise God when we understand what he's poured out on us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And and make no mistake, that spiritual blessing here is important. He's not talking about blessings of the here and now. He's not talking about temporary blessings that fade, that wealth that rusts and rots and is stolen. That moth eats and destroys. 
He's talking about spiritual lasting blessings. What are those spiritual blessings? Well, that's what we turn and focus on the whole of point number two. So let us see first and foremost that we need to bless our God and it's because of what we're going to see in these uh, blessings by God that he has given us. Now, we're going to do something unusual and it's here on the screen for this purpose. Most of the time I give you two or three, maybe four points straightforward. I don't like doing the sub points because sometimes it's easy to get lost, but it was easier to communicate and structure this this way with sub points than it was to go six points. I hope you appreciate. The idea here is to lay these out in what are these blessings by God? Well, here they are in four sub points. God has blessed us in choosing us, sub point one. Sub point two, God has blessed us in redeeming us. Subpoint three, God has blessed us in giving us an inheritance. And subpoint four, God has blessed us in sealing us. I'll give each of these as we go. But first, let's look at how God has blessed us by choosing us. Look at verses four and five again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is the first way that God has blessed us in a spiritual manner. Before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, God chose a people for himself in Christ. Before sin ever entered the world in Genesis 3, God chose a people for himself before the foundation of the world. Before he said, let there be light, he chose a people for himself. I love how John Stott puts this in his commentary. He says, he being God, determined to make us who did not yet exist his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, which had not yet taken place. God chose us in him. This phrase, God chose us in him, is what's known as the doctrine of election. It's a stumbling block for many. I get that. I know that. But here's the thing. The reason, part of the reason this is a stumbling block is we often associate this term with men in church history. But the problem is before men wrote it, God spoke it. God spoke this before men wrote it. This is a doctrine from God's word. God breathed all of this. And what does Paul write here? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Friends, even if it is a stumbling block, we cannot deny God's word. We must wrestle with the truths here, even if they're hard and make us uncomfortable. But part of the reason we struggle with a doctrine such as the doctrine of election, of his choosing us, of his predestining us in love, is because of misunderstanding of a few things. One, we overemphasize how much credit we have. We think too highly of ourselves. 
We think that we still have enough good in our sin to choose God, to choose Christ. We think that somehow we can say that I have chosen Jesus. Again, I, I got to quote Stott here because it's just that good and better said than I could. He says, yes, indeed you did and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. Let me repeat that. Yes, indeed you did choose and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided for you. Why is this important for us to understand? Because we fail to understand the significance of the fall. We fail to understand that when sin entered this world, it didn't just taint us a little bit. Our oldest this week, and during that time, decided as she's drawing on a board that she's going to draw on her arms. Thankfully, it was washable and easy to come off. That's what we think of sin, that it's easily removed. But when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it corrupted the whole being. Your minds, brothers and sisters, my mind was corrupted in sin. My heart, my soul, your heart, your soul was corrupted by the fall. What does Paul write in elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 3, 10 through 11? Does he not write this? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. What did we learn in, in John 3? That the new birth does not come apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Spirit, which is the part of the triune God, none will be born again. None will come to Jesus and be united to Him. Now here comes the second stumbling block. The first is we think too highly of ourselves and fail to see the extent of sin. But as we struggle with this, we begin to ask questions, but we ask the wrong ones. It's okay to ask questions, Christian. I, I'm not saying don't ask questions. Don't try to make sense of this. But our problem when we try to understand something like the doctrine of election is we start in the wrong place. We say, how could God choose some and not choose others? How could God choose some and not choose others? Friends, that's the wrong question. I think it's well-meaned, but it, it's the wrong question. The question isn't, how could God choose some and not others? The question is, how could God choose anyone? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. How could God choose any when we've all fallen short of the glory of God? We all deserve death. Not one of us deserves His grace. Grace is just that unmerited, undeserved favor. You don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve Jesus. God doesn't have to choose any of us. But what does the text go on to say? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We think of this doctrine of election as something just cosmetic and, and unloving, and yet it's out of the very love of God and the nature of God and the character of God that he chooses any of us to come to himself. In love, he predestined some of us to come and be drawn back to himself through this redemption in Christ. 
He chooses to redeem some of us who have rejected him as king. In fact, he, he chooses to take rebels, those of us who were rebels, and then adopts us as sons and daughters. Giving us everything that belongs to the beloved son, he also gives to us. Because God in his adoption isn't saying, okay, I've got my beloved son, and then there's you. I know Reed talked about adoption last week with his daughter. There's no difference. He talked about that in his own family, and the same is true in Christ. There is no difference in how God looks on his son and looks on us as we've been chosen and adopted in Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters, do you see the beauty and the love of God's choosing? It's the fact that he loves us to the point of awakening our cold and dead hearts from sin to choose any of us and draw us to himself. To still have that relationship with him and to be made sons and daughters even when we've been rebels. Even when we've raised our fist at him in rebellion. And that's what we've been living in prior to Christ. We lived in rebellion. We were free to sin. We gave ourselves to sin. Our thoughts reigned and were full of sin. Even now, even as redeemed members, we still fight that struggle of sin, and yet God still chose us. It wasn't anything He foresaw in us, of goodness in us. It was of His own grace. Because it's of His own grace that He redeems. And it's of His own grace that He transforms. Friends, let us marvel at who our God is and the blessings He has poured out on us in Christ by choosing us. And let it cause us then to overwhelm in praise to God. Let us, yes, this, this doctrine is complicated. I get it. There's things, and studying it for years, I still wrestle with. But here's the thing we should all be able to walk away with. God, in His love, chose a people for Himself in Christ. To make His own. And that, friends, should cause us to, to respond here in verse 6 as Paul breaks out into praise. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God's choosing us should cause us to praise and bless the name of God our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, see His spiritual blessing in choosing us. But also, we, we need to see it moves from choosing us to redeeming us. As, as we move to our second sub-point there in verses 7 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord again from 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Jesus, we have redemption. This word redemption means release or liberation from imprisonment or captivity. We were imprisoned in the captivity of sin. We were in the bondage of sin. The snares of death had a hold of us and were killing us. Had left us dead where we could not choose God. And yet, 
Yet in God's choosing, in his predestining us as sons and daughters, he comes and redeems us through the blood of Jesus and brings the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Jesus' coming, every sin is washed away. Though our garments were covered in scarlet, they are now made white as snow through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus comes to redeem us, to make us clean in him. But there's more to this. There, there's not just a little bit of grace in this. There's just not enough grace just to say, okay, now you're clean. Good luck. Notice, notice what is said here in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And then verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God's redemption for us is not enough just to get us to pray and ask Jesus into our heart. His Redemption is enough to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, to conform us to his image so that we may be like him in every way, that we may grow up into him as walking holy and blameless. That's the whole point of God's choosing us back from verse 4, to be holy and blameless before him. God does not work to redeem us just for that initial status. He's working to redeem us and to make us holy even in the right here, right now. Christian, how is God's grace being shown in your own life and causing you to grow in Christ's likeness? How is that grace being poured out on you as you are still trying to figure out what does it mean to actually take up my cross and follow Jesus? God's grace is more than just that getting across and getting that get out of hell free card. That's how we painted the gospel, isn't it, for so long? Let's just give it people so they don't escape and die in hell. We miss the grace of Jesus, though, in how that it's effective to redeem the whole of ourselves. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, to renew your mind, your body, your soul, to, to offer your life as a living sacrifice. How do we do that? The grace of God to us in Christ, which is lavished out on us in every way. Brothers, sisters, see the grace that has been poured out and lavished on us in Christ to do that kind of work. But it doesn't stop there. This redemption is so much more. Look at how it continues to go on. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This coming redemption of Jesus wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the very beginning. It was his plan for the fullness of time to redeem a people in Jesus. How many of you actually understand what an altar is we think uh, of an altar in, in southern baptist cultures and independent baptist culture in particular because those are the things i've grown up in call call this up here often an altar but the problem is that's that's not a biblical altar the altar is not where you come to lay yourself on the line it's where the blood was spilt where sacrifice was had 
Imagine this table here where we will take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service covered in blood. That's an altar. The only altar of the Christian faith is where Christ came to die on the cross. He shed his blood to wash away our sins and our transgressions. He was sacrificed on the altar. That was God's plan. And the sacrificial system was all pointing to him. It was pointing to that once and final sacrifice in Jesus. Where his blood was shed for us. So that we could be redeemed. So that we who were filthy could be made clean in Jesus. That's the altar. That was God's plan from the very beginning. Everything was pointing to Jesus in that moment. This is why he came to live and to die on the cross and to rise again. And because of it, God's grace has been lavished upon us to save us, to conform us. But look at what else here is added following this. This was God's plan from fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, earlier we talked about how we failed to see the effect of sin on us. We also failed to see the effects of sin on the world. We failed to see how sin has affected every part of creation. 2011, some severe tornadoes broke through the south. First touching down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama on the University of Alabama's campus. Students were thrown from their dormitories. There was a story of one football player from the University of Alabama who was with a teammate and his girlfriend and, and remembers his, his girlfriend just being sucked out from his arms and he survived, she didn't. That same storm system would come and, and travel down, uh, travel east, wor working its way into Georgia and up I-75 from Georgia up into Tennessee. It would strike and level uh, trees and buildings. Uh, I remember hearing stories there in Dalton of people in the McDonald's just freaking out as the storm blew through there. That same storm would later on that day, within probably an hour, jump over my apartment and touched down 15 minutes from me. When it touched down there, it did devastation. One house you would see on a street was fully intact, untouched. The next house was completely intact, but it was blown completely off its foundation. And then the next several houses were utterly destroyed. Nothing left. North of there in Cleveland, I think it was the same storm system. There was one house that one of my dad's players' grandparents lived in. First floor was intact. The second story was gone except for a few pieces of furniture still standing there. Creation itself is broken and affected by sin, and this is some of how. All of creation is broken. The strife between man and serpent. I don't know about you, I hate snakes. I hate snakes. I rightfully hate snakes. I know some have run through a door screaming like a little girl in this congregation when a snake has, has been in their sight. So some of you can feel that pain. Creation and strife are broken because of sin. Because does not Isaiah talk about when the day of redemption comes that the child will play over the hole of the cobra of the adder? 
Redemption comes to the point of righting every wrong, including that of creation, restoring all of creation and making it new again. You see the the redemption that is brought to us in Jesus. He's making all things new again. This is the blessing. This is the hope that we cling to. Brothers, sisters, I get the world seems to be changing faster and at a speed that we can't keep up with right now. Things are changing faster than they've probably ever changed as far as the cycle pattern. But we must remember there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Every form of sin is the same patterns, same things we've seen. It just looks a little different. There's always been murder. Or there's always been sexual immorality. There's been that of homosexuality struggles. We saw in Sodom and Gomorrah the men groping at the door to try and take the, the two angels that had come in there in Sodom. We've seen all of these patterns of sin all throughout history. There's nothing new. But instead of panicking in the midst of it, we need to cling to this hope. What has God's plan for the fullness of time been to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth? Is this where we're resting our hope? Or are we trusting in our government to do it? Are we trusting in the king of kings or some political person? Stop trusting in the temporary and the here and now and trust in Christ. Trust in Him alone. Because He is the way, the truth, the life. He's the one who brings reconciliation. He's the one who brings hope. He gives a better hope. Brothers and sisters, let us trust in this Jesus and Him alone. Because this is the redemption He brings. And He brings us something far better. And this is where we go in our, our third sub-point. He brings us an inheritance. Look at verses 11 and 12. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. An inheritance. In Jesus, we have been blessed with that of a spiritual inheritance. An inheritance of where all that is Jesus's becomes ours, where we Go and dwell with God for all eternity. What's the great end of the book of Revelation? That no more light and sun and moon are needed because God is our light. To dwell with God forever. That's our greatest inheritance and promise. Yes, I know the Bible talks about streets of gold and mansions and and all this. But friends, I don't care anything. Give me my Jesus. Give me my Jesus who has shed his blood to redeem me. Give me my God who has chosen me and loved me even when I was unworthy. That's our inheritance. To be with God forever and ever in the splendor of his glory. Friends, that's what we have in Jesus. And this is assured. Why? Because look what it says having predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is working all of this out. He's working it out. Nothing is going to fall outside His counsel, His will, His plans. Because He's the sovereign Lord and He orchestrates in a way of providence. And I'm going to distinguish the two here. Sovereignty is rulership. God has authority over all. He created all. He created you and me. That's why we're accountable to him. That's why we must have salvation the way he's called us to in Jesus. 
But he's also working this all out because he loves us. And that's where providence comes in. He's working it all out in a means of love. He's not standing there idle. He's orchestrating it all. He's he's behind every detail working it for our ultimate good in Christ. Therefore, when he knows an inheritance is going to be ours, he's going to work it out to ensure it. We're promised that inheritance in Jesus. It can't be taken away. Unless the world tempts us to, to think otherwise, look at, at the fourth subpoint, verses 13 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let's deal with that alone for a moment. In coming to hear and believe in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, lest we just throw this phrase gospel around, the gospel is the word of truth. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to live, to die, to take away the sins of the world because he was the perfect and obedient son of God. He was perfect and obedient where we were imperfect and where we were disobedient. He came to reconcile us to the God we had rebelled against And by belief in him, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, belief in him in that, we can live and have eternal life in him. That's the gospel. So when we believe this good news, when we believe this gospel of our salvation, this word of truth, which counters every false teaching out there, every false word out there, when it says this is the word of truth, When you've heard this word of truth, this gospel, and you believed in him being Christ, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, there in Acts 2, from that moment forward, anyone who came to the place of true and right belief in Jesus and him alone, in that moment were endowed with the Holy Spirit. There's no second baptism of the Holy Spirit coming after now, as some of our Pentecostal friends would would like to make us think. There's one moment of belief, and that Holy Spirit empowers. In that moment of true belief, the Holy Spirit empowers. And what does this Holy Spirit do when it comes? It seals us with. It's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Christian, the very work of and evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is guarantee of what's yours, of that coming inheritance. Some of you, as, as you walk the Christian life, you may have doubts. You may struggle. Did I rightly believe? Did I truly believe in Jesus? Am I rightly resting in him? You want to know if you had that guarantee of an inheritance, that guarantee of this is truly yours? Test yourself. Test yourself by the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24 lays out the fruits of the Spirit. Test yourself. See, or am I growing? Ask a close friend, am I growing in any of these at this time? Or how have you seen me grow in these fruits of the Spirit over the last year? 
Test yourself according to those. If you can see the work of the Spirit in your life, even if it's bumpy, even if it's just one or two of those fruits, Christian, rest assured, you have the inheritance. It is yours. Christ and that Spirit that's at work in you, that's redeeming you, that's God's grace to you being poured out and lavished continually upon you and transforming you, that's the guarantee you have an inheritance in Christ, that the kingdom is yours. That's the certainty you need. Now, if you go to test yourself and you don't find, you need to test, okay, maybe or am I more filled with the fruits of the flesh? That of Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And if that's the case, friend, you need to repent. You need to come to true and right belief in Jesus because that's the only hope you have. That's the hope. So friends, when we begin to see the blessings that God has poured out upon us, when we see that God has chosen a people for himself to be adopted as sons and daughters, that's, that's one of the blessings he has poured out on us in Christ by choosing us in him. Choosing us when we were unworthy before we ever even dared think of him. He chose us to awaken us, to call us by his word and the power of the spirit to be one with Jesus. That's one way he has blessed us. He blessed us in redeeming us, not just to to get out a health free card. He blessed us in conforming us to the son. He blessed us by washing away every sin and trespass. He's blessed us in the fact that he's making all things new, including us. And uniting all things to him under his rule and right reign where we recognize and bow to him. He's blessed us in promising us and guaranteeing us an inheritance which we are sealed by a promise. Now think about it this way. When it it says we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee? I'm a 90s kid. I loved the show Full House growing up. We still watch it as a family. Darcy loved it. Our girls now are are beginning to love it. It, It's about a a father who is a widowed father with three girls. His two best friends move in to help him raise these daughters. In one of the episodes, the dad has given the oldest daughter, DJ, a blue sweater on Valentine's Day. She wears it to school. She takes it off during recess because she doesn't want it to get hot and sweaty. She lays it aside, and what happens? The mower comes through and cuts this new sweater all to pieces. Being the foolish teenager she is, she thinks instead of, I need to go tell Dad what happened, she thinks maybe me and my friend can go to the mall, maybe we can somehow replace it and all be all right. Well, long story short, they go to the store, they figure out they don't have near enough money because it's an $80 sweater. They're kids, they can't afford that. And they're, they're hopeless. Well, the middle daughter, Stephanie, sees the sign. Buy now, pay later. The kid she is, she misses. She thinks, oh, I can just take this now and then come back later and pay. So she steals it. The alarm goes off, but they think it's another lady, so they escape. And uh, they come back trying to return it after realizing she stole it. They're caught and have to deal with all this. Stephanie misunderstood the buy now, pay later part. God doesn't give us a buy now, pay later. 
He gives us a sealed promise. He puts down the card to give the down payment of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that the job's going to be finished. That payment's truly coming. You see the blessings we have in Christ, Christian? Cherish that. Let that cause our hearts to swell of who we are in Christ so that we may actually begin to walk in Christ and to rightly follow him. Part of the Christian struggle is we miss the depths of what we have in Jesus. Because we made it more about the prayer than him. Friends, let us marvel at Jesus and the blessings that the Father has given us in him. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not holding back on us. He's not holding back on maybe like we would in giving our son something valuable when he's not ready. The Father's given it all in Jesus. Let's rejoice in that. Let's respond in praise to him in thanksgiving and let our hearts ignite with praise be to God because that is where all of this should lead. It should lead us to praise. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 10, um, or verse 12, so that we who are the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May we praise and glorify our God for what he has given us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace.